I realize the, uh, the news cycle has provided me with um, sermon introductions the last few weeks. Uh, the protests in Charlottesville and the issue of racism a couple weeks ago. Last week, we, I began with the eclipse and the big questions that it raised about God. And today, this news from Texas continues to impact me, and I know a lot of you. What strikes me as we begin to unpack this message uh, on this passage on self-denial is the mix of stories that come out of Houston. Uh, mostly we get these incredible stories of acts of selfless heroism, um, uh, uh, heroes risking their own lives, uh, willing to sacrifice their own comfort for the safety of others. read just this morning about a furniture store just opening itself up as a shelter, you know, and that will now be used furniture, and the owner doesn't care. It's a selfless act uh, to provide places, people risking their life. People willing to sacrifice their own comfort for the safety of others. But then there's also these stories of these self serving charity scams of don't be taken in by people trying to scam you through that. That's why I'm so grateful for our own covenant world relief and uh, assurance that we have that funds go to the right place. Selfishness and selflessness. In the sermon series, we're wrapping up today, uh, this following the rabbi. I don't know if you noticed, I'll, I'll sum up front. This is, a, this is a prayer shawl that a rabbi would use. That's, what, that's what's been up here up front. Jesus, who was called rabbi, teacher by his followers. And through this series, we've been looking at lessons in discipleship and how to follow Jesus. And today's passage, Jesus sets a standard. Uh, he sets a standard and he sets the stakes much higher than he has prior to this. He's saying, follow me, it isn't just believing the right things or saying the right things. It's not just receiving the blessings and experiencing the power of walking with me or experiencing the healings and miraculous miracles that you've seen. But now he introduces the cross. He doesn't yet introduce his own cross, but he introduces the cross here. It will be a real cross for Jesus, and he introduces a figurative cross for the follower. And then teaches here about a willingness to set aside self and maybe even suffer on behalf of Jesus. This is really what I see as a deeper dive into discipleship. What I'd like to call more Jesus Less me. Less me and more Jesus. Here's what we'll look at. That right after Jesus, right after he declares that he will build his church, like we talked about last week, build his church on Peter's great declaration, now he begins to prepare his disciples for his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. This opens up a deepening discipleship lesson from the rabbi that leads us to say, less me and more Jesus. We see in this passage, first of all, Jesus getting ready to die and getting his disciples ready. Secondly, we see Peter getting in the way with what he thinks is a good agenda and it's not. And then we see Jesus rebuking Peter and saying, get out of the way or get behind me and follow. And fourthly, it will take us then to the table as we reflect on the grace of God through Christ. Getting ready to die, this text says again. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, Peter has just made this great declaration that we talked about last week. If you weren't here, it was that place where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, on this confession, I will, I will build my church starting with you, Peter. But then right after that, there's a high, high moment up there in Caesarea Philippi. There's a shift in ministry focus. 
There's a shift in the focus of Jesus' ministry. Instead of teaching the crowds in parables, instead of showing them miracles and feeding and healing, he now concentrates on preparing his disciples for his suffering and death. We said last week that Peter and the disciples got it. When Peter made that declaration, he got it, that Jesus was truly the Messiah of God, but clearly they did not get it completely. They were still thinking, you are the Messiah, but they were thinking conquering Messiah, not executed Messiah. And that's why Jesus said, don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody yet because you don't completely get it. And if you tell them I'm the conquering Messiah, it'll incite a rebellion before it's my time. But now it's my time, and they are headed to Jerusalem. Jesus starts towards Jerusalem. He says, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and whenever we see Jerusalem from now on, it equals death and resurrection. The gospel writer Luke says, Jesus resolutely set, his, set out for Jerusalem. And every time Jerusalem is, go to Jerusalem is mentioned from then on in Matthew and in Luke, it means, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. They headed Jerusalem. And I'm going to be killed, and it's not by who you would think are the bad guys, the evil people out there that are just in it for themselves, but it's actually by the established Orthodox religious leaders of the day. Those who think they're upholding the high ideals of Judaism. They're the ones that are going to kill me. And it will happen on a cross. The most disgusting, brutal, low-life way to be executed. And Jesus now is getting them ready to experience this and understand it. But Peter, dear old Peter, is getting in the way. Verse 22 says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Peter's reaction here is, there's no way that this could happen to you. And it's a sense Peter's saying, this prediction does not fit with my great declaration of who you are. The work of the Messiah could not possibly be connected to a cross. How could God possibly permit such a thing? It's possible that Peter even got forceful. It says that he, he took him. He took him aside. It could be that Peter pulled him aside. And the words have this feeling of, the, of a deep and strong emotion. Peter is not stupid. He's impulsive, but he's not stupid. He truly believes that he is doing the right thing here. But he is clearly getting in the way of God's plan. And so then we have Jesus' rebuke. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Satan? Wow. Peter, who just had the all-star answer to your biggest question ever, is Satan? Really? Is Jesus just overreacting a bit here? The word Satan comes from a Hebrew word meaning adversary. Adversary. Adversary, the one who is opposed to the plans and purposes of God. So in a sense, he's not speaking to Peter himself, really, but the spirit of what he says is adversarial. In fact, we know how the story goes. Peter's going to be all right. He's not banished from the presence of Jesus forever. We know that he's going to be around and be forgiven and mess up a few more times before all this plays out, right? We know he's there at the cross. We know he's there on the beach where he receives forgiveness from Jesus. We know he is there front and center on the day of Pentecost and fired up to become a great apostle for the church. We know that ultimately Peter's going to be okay. But for now, he's standing in the way. He's getting in the way 
And Peter moves from this rock of foundation, Peter coming from the same word as rock, Petros. He's been a rock of foundation when Jesus said he's going to build his church. But now Jesus said, now you become a rock that I'm tripping over and others will too. Peter trying to get in the way of the plan of God harkens back to Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness. Here's a picture of the Judean wilderness. Yes, it's that stark. Nothing grows out there. This is where the Spirit led Jesus from Jerusalem to the east. In between Jerusalem and the Jordan River is this stark wilderness. And out there is where Satan is tempting Jesus to take his own way. He's tempting Jesus to doubt the Father's plan. He's tempting him to use his miracles to win people over, to impress them, to avoid and circumvent the suffering and misunderstanding. And in this deep time of temptation for 40 days and 40 nights, finally Jesus turns and says, Away from me, Satan. Away from me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, he says to Peter. And then the line that really sticks it to Peter here and to me <laughs> And you do not have the mind, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Bam. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely personal human concerns. That's it. My plan, my way, my safety, my security, or God's plan in the way of Jesus. Less me. More Jesus. Instead of getting in the way as Peter did, we need to learn how to get out of the way. Getting out of the way. I like that Jesus says, get behind me. It's not like get out of the way, get completely out of my way, but get right back behind me where you're supposed to be as a follower, not a leader. You just jumped in the way trying to take the lead on this thing. Now get out of the way and get behind me and follow me. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Now this is not the simple self-denial of going without something for a period of time, like giving up Facebook for Lent. I mean, that might be the ultimate sacrifice or Instagram or whatever it has to be, but that's not the kind of self-denial we're talking about. It's not like saying for, for six weeks I'm not going to have my $4 mocha decaf latte chai sugar drink And I'm going to give the money instead to a good cause and save that $4 a week or a day or whatever. It's not that kind of self-denial. I'm actually, you may find this hard to believe, but I'm actually drinking much less coffee than I used to. I'm down to about one cup, cup and a half in the morning. But I'm not doing it as an act of self-denial. I'm doing it because I actually feel better drinking less coffee. But you know what? That still comes back to, I feel better. I'm doing it for me. So it's still selfish. (laughs) still about me. No, this denial is much more, uh, much bigger than this. And that's the point. It's less me, less me and more Jesus, ceasing to make self the object of our life and actions. It means doing the hard work of discipleship, the hard discipleship work of learning to say no to self and yes to God and wanting to do that more and more. We can, we can make ourselves do that for a time, but it's really hard. But once we, once we we've kind of feel the flow of the Spirit and God leading us in things, we, we want to live that way more. It's to go through life repeating the words that Jesus the night, said the night before that he died. When he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to God the Father, Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus himself struggled to do his own way that night, and yet 
denied himself and gave in to the plan of the Father. It's what millions of Christians have prayed for centuries when we repeat in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But yes to God may mean suffering. Deny yourself and take up your cross as Jesus. Now, taking up your cross has been interpreted in many different ways and misunderstood, I think. This, again, is not just the human conditions that bring difficulty to our lives, even though those are very real and of concern to us. Some of the human conditions we undergo, like millions of people in the Houston area now, are, are suffering because of this, what happened to this storm. But this isn't really quite the same as bearing a cross. Someone carrying a chronic illness struggles with that, and, and sometimes it might be a thorn like Paul talks about, but that's not carrying our cross for the cause of Christ. In fact, it's even said sometimes that a, a woman's monthly cycle is her cross to bear. This is not talking about that kind of thing. It's not even talking about marginalization or abuse by others that cause suffering in our lives or the poor choices of others or our own poor decisions that bring suffering into our lives. These things are all very real. They bring pain and, and, and frustration to life. And they can very much be used by God to shape character. And they do shape our character. Whatever Paul's thorn was shaped his character. And these things work in there. And God causes all things to work together for good to those that know and love Christ and want to be conformed to his image. Yes, they're important, but these are not cross-bearing things. This speaks of a willingness to suffer for Christ by putting him first. It means saying we will count the cost of following Christ and what that might mean in terms of what we sacrifice and put behind us. It's a willingness to do the hard things instead of the easy things. As he leads and for his cause, and to fulfill his purposes. And of course, for the first few centuries of Christendom, it meant martyrdom. People literally died because they were following Jesus. And we know all too well that there are still places, still places in the world where that's happening. You're at risk of death for following Christ. For us, it comes in more subtle forms. We're not usually putting our life on the line Some would maybe want to paint some really scary prophetic scenarios where there might be a day where we do that in our country. Maybe so, but right now it's not that way. Even though we're in a post-Christian world, we're still not killing Christians in our country. But it might have to do with the smaller choices we have to make, about employment decisions or ethical and moral choices we make that may be for the cause of Christ that cause us to run against the grain or the culture of our company or our community. It comes down sometimes to the hard choice to abandon personal ambition to truly want what God wants for us, even if it costs something. I give myself away so you can use me. Luke, in his version of this same story, says this. He says, take up your cross. He adds one word, daily. (laughs) Take up your cross daily. I was thinking about this. I think it can mean a couple things. First of all, take up your cross daily implies that it's not just the big deal decisions like I turned on a job promotion 20 years ago because I thought it would compromise me morally. That was it. Took up my cross. No, it looks at us every day. There's things every day. The way we say things, when we choose to take the higher road instead of to retaliate. The decision to give rather than to hoard. Oh, whatever it might be. These, these are decisions daily. Take up your cross daily. 
taking the heat maybe, but the, the, the daily decision to follow and to be willing. That might be one thing that he meant by daily. But I think another way that daily might mean is take it up daily because you dropped it yesterday. Because <laughs> we do, every day. We drop that thing, oh, maybe tomorrow. No, take it up daily. It's the hard road of discipleship. It's, it's the grace to endure. <laughs> it, we, 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 we're going to make mistakes every day. Peter makes a huge one here. And yet, there's grace for him. And so every day, we've got to pick that thing up again and, and not lose hope. The encouragement from Lamentations. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Grace for each day. The grace that it speaks of, I mentioned the, the thorn passage in 2 Corinthians 12. And Paul realizes that Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness because you keep dropping the stinking cross every day. So pick it up again. Scott McKnight in his book, Kingdom Conspiracy, that I've mentioned a couple times this summer, builds a case for Jesus being the king and the, and the church being the place where we live as members of that kingdom. But he says that because Jesus is king and he's crucified, it means that ours is a cruciform kingdom. Cruciform means cross-shaped. It is not just a kingdom of triumph and glory as a kingdom shaped by a cross. And then McKnight says that the kingdom mission to which we're called to is cruciform, meaning it will cost. And we bear the cross and we bear the marks of the cross. Daily. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Be willing to be different. Diane Q just sent me an article the other day about Bill Hybels. I didn't go to the Global Leadership Summit this summer. Did anybody go to the Bull Creek Summit this year? A few of you. I missed it, but I, this is from Bill Hybels' opening talk, which the years that I've gone, it's always my, my highlight is always his opening talk. <laughs> and his opening talk was, incivility, parentheses, even in Christian leadership, is killing us. Incivility, even in Christian leadership, is killing us. I quote from the article. It says, in his opening talk for the annual Global Leadership Summit, Willow Creek Community Church Pastor Bill Hybels addressed what he believes is one of the most damaging trends harming the United States incivility. In our culture, there is an increased disrespect for women, widening gaps between the rich and poor, social media vitriol, politicians who spend more time berating each other than solving problems. Heibel said, quote, how do we lead in an era of runaway divisiveness and disrespect? The solution has to begin with me. For him, it's part of how he follows Christ. Reminding the audience that we, quote, we of faith do not get to choose who we respect. We don't get to choose who we respect. Isn't that great? And then he laid out several rules every leader must follow to combat the caustic incivility invading not only American culture but other cultures as well. Here's just a few of them. Set the example of how to differ with others without demonizing them. How to differ without demonizing another. Model how to have spirited conversations without, quote-unquote, drawing blood. I like this one. Never interrupt others who are talking and do not dominate the conversation. 
Number four, limit your volume level and refuse to use incendiary or belittling words that are guaranteed to derail a discussion. There are words we need to excise from our vocabulary in order to take a higher road and follow Christ. Here's the final one. Form opinions carefully and stay open-minded if better information comes along. I am guilty of finding the articles that agree with what I feel. And I felt a conviction about that recently, and I realized I need to look at what they're saying about some of the issues. I don't mean to even... The political issues, yes. Issues surrounding the whole area of how we respond to sexual ethics, all those things. Be open Form opinions carefully and stay open-minded if better information comes along, especially when the body of Christ, when there's different opinions rather than saying somebody's definitely not a Christian because they said that. Do not say that. Listen to why they said that. Listen. I'm just choosing this as one area of what it means to follow Christ that may not be a popular way, but to be a representative for him. I found another article entitled, What Does It Mean to Deny Yourself? And this was the photo. I love this. Isn't that great? Be willing, to, be willing to be different. Comes out of Western Seminary in, uh, in Michigan, and the author, Bill Mount, says this, How is the new life that we live in Christ different from the life we lived before the gate? How is the path different? The path is different because it is the path of discipleship, of following Jesus. As we follow Jesus, we start to, quote, look more and more like him. And as we look more and more like him, we look less like the world. Jesus says, deny yourself, take your cross, and follow me. And he might actually mean it might involve a cross for us too. This is where this is going, says Jesus. And I want you to follow me all the way there. Which brings us to the table. Because he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, we know that that last supper is coming, and we know that the institution of the Lord's Supper is coming. And I think as we, as we look at this and we consider this story and what lays ahead, lies ahead for Jesus, it reminds us of at least three different things that happen here at the table. When we get to the table, and we will come forward today, we're all going to come down the center aisle, by the way. I'll repeat these directions a couple times so we don't run into each other. Come this way. So we're actually going to come to the table uh, today. But there's three things as you prepare for that and as you participate in the supper that we do. First of all, when we're getting to the table, we're, we're looking back. We're looking back at this time in Jesus' life. We're looking back at what he anticipated. We're looking back at what happened in Jerusalem. We're looking back at what happened as he went through these unfair trials, the horrible suffering, and what happened on the cross. We look back to the historical reality of Christ giving his life. That's the past. In the present, we look inside. We look around. It's called communion because we do it together. You don't, don't, you don't do communion in your personal devotions at home. You do it with people, all right? But I'm asking you to look inside in terms of this willingness to follow and what it might look like daily, looking inside me. And then thirdly, we look ahead. Jesus was looking ahead. He was looking to the suffering and death, but he also mentioned resurrection, and he was looking all the way to the glory when he would reign completely as king. And we do that at the table too. In fact, he says, do this, Keep doing this until I come again. Keep proclaiming my death until I come again. Past, present reality, 
and future come together at the table. And it all comes out of what happened on the cross. A broken body and shed blood happened on the cross, and it gives shape to the life that we live in Christ. Let's pray as we prepare to receive the supper. Lord, this passage is so big, and I fear that I've barely scratched the surface, and it tugs at me to be more personally engaged with it all. And if any of my sisters or brothers are feeling the same thing, I pray, Lord, that you would guide us on that journey to a deeper place of what it means to be shaped by the cross. Lord, we come as uh, those feeble disciples who don't completely get it. We come to receive the gift of the supper, this this issue of your grace, this mystery of grace that we get to encounter in the sacrament. And we come and we look back at your sacrifice. We come and we look inside for the places you're challenging us to grow. And we look ahead with great hope, Lord, for the day when you will reign fully as kingdom over a new heaven and new earth. We love you, Lord. Be present with us now as we share. We pray in your name. Amen.